Welcome to Herrick Does That, a podcast on current legal topics, relevant industry and legal trends, and significant developments in the law, brought to you by the attorneys of Herrick Feinstein. I'm Erwin Kishner, Herrick's executive chairman, and I want to thank you for joining us. Mike Smith here. I'm a partner in the real estate group at Herrick Feinstein. I have a, a broad-based transactional real estate practice and, among other things, do a fair amount of development rights transfers, which include, among other types of transfers, inclusionary air rights. Inclusionary air rights are going to be the topic of our conversation today, and I'm going to kick it off now to my partner, Patrick O'Sullivan. Hi, I'm Patrick O'Sullivan. I'm also a partner uh, in the real estate group here at Herrick Feinstein. And uh, my practice uh, primarily focuses on development transactions, uh, oftentimes involving mixed-use transactions, uh, residential, commercial, and oftentimes will have a public sector component to it. And so one of the items that uh, does come up in these uh, types of transactions is uh, an affordable housing component. Uh, and uh, as part of those transactions as well, we look at uh, inclusionary air rights. And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about what are inclusionary air rights uh, and uh, how you get them. Uh, and then uh, if uh, if you as owner uh, yourself are not using them, how you can potentially monetize that asset by uh, transferring them. And so that's what we'll talk about today. And to start it off, I'll, uh, I'll ask you, Mike, uh, in, in general, when we say inclusionary air rights, what exactly do we mean by inclusionary air rights? Sure. So in New York City, what we call inclusionary air rights are generated when an owner voluntarily creates permanent affordable housing through new construction. That's either substantial rehabilitation or preservation beyond what's otherwise required. The owners can then either use the inclusionary air rights to develop a bigger building than is permitted as of right on their property or sell the inclusionary air rights to other owners either within the same community district or an adjacent community district that's within a half a mile of this generating site. It's worth noting at the outset that inclusionary air rights projects can also take advantage of other programs such as 421A if, of course, the project independently satisfies each program's requirements. Right. So I think that's, you know, that's something that's really important to note is that, you know, the different programs that may be available to you are not mutually exclusive. Uh, you may, in fact, actually have an ability to uh, combine two or more, uh, just depending on the type of, of project that you have. So, you know, so that's as what inclusionary air rights are. And then, uh, you know, I think often the next question is, well, how do you actually calculate these air rights? How does that come about? And so, the, the key here is, uh, you know, at the heart of this calculation is uh, it's what's called the bonus ratio, uh, which is a, a ratio that's in the zoning text. And it tells you based on the amount of affordable housing square feet that you're either preserving or creating, um, you will then multiply that by this ratio uh, to determine how much in the way of inclusionary air rights uh, are being uh, created. Uh, so, as an example, if you have a site where you're preserving 100,000 square feet of affordable housing, that um, your site, the generating site, could have a bonus ratio of 1.25. Uh, and so, you apply that 1.25 to your 100,000, uh, and so you will wind up with uh, inclusionary air rights uh, or bonus air rights uh, of 125,000 uh, square feet. So that's the basic calculation. 
you know, I can tell you, uh, you know, from experience, uh, depending on the type of transaction, you know, I had one where uh, where we worked with a not-for-profit that was preserving, you know, 150,000 plus square feet of affordable housing uh, and applied then a 2.0 ratio to it and uh, and then had 300,000 square feet of air rights to uh, to monetize and, and use for other projects. So, uh, so that really, you know, I think shows you how it can be quite quite valuable to the owner. So with that, Mike, I think the, the next question that comes up is how do you get these rights? What's the, what's the process? Sure. So on the side of the generating owner, who is the owner that's constructing the affordable housing, they have to get approval from HPD, the New York City Department of Housing, Preservation and Development. So in order to get this approval, they deliver an affordable housing plan to HPD, which includes, among other things, information about the applicant, uh, the generating site owner's ability to preserve the affordable housing, as well as an agent who's going to administer to ensure that the designated units are rented in accordance with a regulatory agreement that the applicant ultimately executes with HPD after approval. Once the applicant has prepared and submitted their affordable housing plan to HPD, they then present to the community board, which can provide comments to the plan. And after that, HPD reviews the plan itself. And if everything's in order, they then approve the plan. Right. So then once you've got that plan approved, the question is, well, what what happens next? And so really then what that owner is going to do is it's going to negotiate with HPD a regulatory agreement, which is going to include in particular the the rent and affordability requirements um, that uh, that the project must comply with uh, and then it will also need to include or it also will include i should say the required capital improvements or construction work that has to happen and you know this this regulatory agreement's an important agreement because among other things it's going to be uh, recorded uh, against the property and so is something that obviously the owner needs to be very mindful of I should also note that one of the other things that's of particular importance with HPD is the funding of a reserves account. That's something that, you know, because the affordable housing that's either being created or preserved needs to be created or preserved in perpetuity. And so it wants to make sure that there are reserves in place to, um, to maintain and keep that permanence of the affordable housing units. So having said that, um, once HPD and the owner have agreed on the regulatory agreement and HPD has reviewed the work, ultimately HPD will issue what's called a certificate of completion of affordable units uh, and a certificate of eligibility, which uh, ultimately specifies the amount of inclusionary air rights that uh, that winds up being generated by the project. And so I think you know once once you have that. Uh, next uh, question uh, becomes, and we touched on it at the very beginning, um, how exactly can these air rights be uh, be used? And so, Mike, I'll turn it over to you. Sure. So inclusionary air rights are bonus rights. The owner who generates these inclusionary air rights on what we call this generating site has two options. They can either use those bonus rights on their own site, or if they're not planning to do so, they can transfer it to a receiving site that is it within either the same community district as the generating site or an adjacent community district that is within a half a mile of the generating site. The air rights which are created through this process are also called floor area compensation when we talk about terms used in the transaction, and they're typically transferred to off-site users pursuant to a purchase and sale agreement. 
Now, I would imagine, Mike, that there's a quite amount of, of risk potentially that a purchaser is taking on when contemplating one of these transactions. What kind of diligence do you recommend they, they undertake in, in connection with these purchase agreements? Sure. As a general matter, just like any other purchase of development rights through, for example, zoning lot merger, which is the most common type of development rights transfer that we uh, conduct, the purchaser needs to conduct the necessary diligence to confirm that the air rights can be used on, on its property. Again, that's the same as that you would do in a zoning lot merger. In terms of transaction terms that we use in these particular types of deals, we call the purchaser's property the compensated zoning lot. One of the things that's different about inclusionary air rights as opposed to the regular zoning lot merger context is that these transactions are typically done at various stages of the generating site's construction. On the one hand, you might have a situation where the generating site is already constructed and all that needs to be done is a document evidencing the transfer of the air rights from the seller to the purchaser after which the purchaser can use. That's the situation where the affordable housing is already constructed. The other situation, which is very common in these types of deals, the generating site owner hasn't even constructed and they may be using this deal to the offsite purchaser as a financing tool to effect as a part of the financing package necessary to construct the affordable housing. In one case, I saw a generating site where the developer of the affordable housing hadn't even purchased their site yet. They were under contract to purchase it. So you contrast that with the situation where the uh, affordable housing is already done and all they need to do is deliver a certificate. Other transactions fall in between and the, and the developer can be at various stages of construction of the affordable housing. And in the context of the purchaser, they're relying on that bonus square footage to construct a new building. So as part of the general diligence as to whether they can use the air rights, they need to get comfortable with the fact that the bonus rights are actually going to be generated on the generating site. Um, factors to consider are whether the developer of the affordable housing has experience in this process. Again, there's a lot of interfacing with HPD and it's a very niche area. Um, as well as other factors that might uh, inform whether or not you think that the project is going to be completed timely. And a purchaser may want to consider, well, what happens if the affordable housing doesn't get constructed? And think about that in the context of remedies under the contract. Right, Mike. I think something that you mentioned, which is really key here, particularly when the affordable housing hasn't been uh, constructed or preserved, is that, as you noted, uh, oftentimes these purchase agreements can be something that the affordable housing um, owner or creator is pointing to for purposes of their own financing. And so what uh, what I, I've seen in these cases is you can have purchase agreements where, whereas normally you might have a 5 or 10% deposit, uh, you, you can have a, a, a far more significant deposit required on the part of the purchaser. And so, you know, as a result, there there is a, a good amount of risk that uh, that the purchaser just needs to be mindful of as they're entering into uh, a transaction like this. Correct, correct. And in addition, in the context where a generating site hasn't even been constructed yet, for example, in the context of new construction, you could be talking about a contract period that lasts multiple years. And any time where you have a contract that lasts a long period of time there is an increased possibility that circumstances are going to change either on the seller or the purchaser side. So the parties need to be mindful about how the contract could be read way in the future where the intentions could be different on either side. For example, on the seller side, once the 
affordable housing is constructed and these air rights are available for sale, they may have increased substantially in value. They may have decreased in the context of a situation where supply and demand has changed the landscape. On the other hand, the developer may be further along or, or delayed in their project. So there's a various number of things that can happen in the years following the execution of this type of purchase and sale agreement that could affect the way that the parties read it years afterward. Now, can I ask, um, what about if the uh, affordable housing or, or the generating site owner, um, what if they have a lender? How, how does the lender, um, is there a lender consent that's required or how exactly does that typically play out? In the context of lender consent, I think it's important to think about the inclusionary air rights transfer as distinct from the typical transfer of development rights by zoning lot merger, which again is the most common type of development rights transfer in New York City. In that type of transaction, the title company plays an active role, gives title insurance, specifically this development rights endorsement, and then independently verifies that all parties and interests have consented to the transaction. That includes, for example, the seller's lender and the purchaser's lender. Uh, as a matter of course. So that sort of process happens automatically in the context of a zoning lot merger transaction. In inclusionary, there is no title insurance available. And so that process is done manually. And so to answer your question, it's not automatic that if you're a purchaser, that you have the insurance assurance in a transaction that the affordable housing lender has signed off on the transaction. So when we are representing a purchaser, even though automatically, as a matter of course, you don't get the assurance that the seller's lender has signed off on the transaction, we do do that diligence manually. And we are mindful of whether lender consent is, is necessary in the case where uh, the inclusionary air rights are part of the mortgage property. For example, the inclusionary air rights may very well be considered a part of the collateral on the generating site. And the seller's Lenders consent may be important to the transaction, even if that information is not necessarily offered by the seller. Um, when negotiating a mortgage with a lender, the borrower, who is the instructor of affordable housing, may specifically deal with inclusionary air rights and provide its lender protection, such as, for example, physical possession of the HPD certificates until the loan is repaid and our bad boy recourse carve-outs for unauthorized transfers. Understood. So I, I think one other thing that's uh, important to note here is that, you know, as part of this process, the uh, seller is going to need to notify HPD as well, because HPD continues to play a role in these transactions as you move from the various stages. And one of the things that is required is uh, HPD needs to sign off on the purchase price uh, that's being paid for the bonus rights. Ultimately, in, in addition, the seller can ask HPD to deliver a permit notice, which is called a DOB letter, to the city's Department of Buildings, um, which describes the affordable housing being preserved or uh, or generated at the site. And um, so that once DOB receives that notice, uh, it can issue a permit to uh, to the purchaser for its site so it can start working on its project. Uh, and so once then uh, the work at the generating site is complete, then um, then the transaction can close. HPD will um, will allow the 
the closing to proceed, and then uh, the purchaser will have their bonus rights and their uh, and their property. So that is uh, inclusionary air rights in a nutshell. I think that um, I don't know about you, Mike, but I think that given market conditions these days, uh, given uh, the desire to uh, try and extract as much value out of out of a development project as as possible, uh, and then also just given the constraints uh, at the city level with respect to affordable housing and uh, you know subsidy, that programs like uh, inclusionary air rights uh, can be an attractive way to help uh, increase the value of a site and uh, and ultimately help uh, help spur development. Yes, for sure. One of the things that's important to note with respect to these transactions is they really require different areas of expertise. And so here at Herrick, uh, you, we have uh, over uh, over 60 attorneys in our real estate group, and we work in close coordination uh, amongst the team, uh, whether it be on the the real estate transaction side, on the on the purchase side, or sale side. In the case of of these transactions or with respect to the development aspects of it, um, to the land use component. Uh, and so we really do work uh, and to try to provide a one-stop shop of services for our clients, uh, just given the various complexities in terms, of, uh, in terms of these transactions. Yes, it's definitely multidisciplinary. At herrick.com, we have a lot of our writings posted, including a number of articles that we've written about development rights generally, as well as specifically inclusionary air rights. Feel free to Take a look and, uh, of course, give us a call anytime if you have any questions related to uh, a site with inclusionary air rights or where there's an inclusionary air rights component or generally. Well, I want to thank everyone for taking the time today to be with us as we go through uh, inclusionary air rights and uh, very much hope that you uh, learned something uh, through our discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us for Herrick's podcast, Herrick Does That. To learn more about our firm and to listen to additional recordings, please visit us at www.herrick.com.